Hey, it's Greg. This is the Square Pizza Pod, cooked up by Shermco. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Square Pizza Pod. This was a really fun episode where we sat down with Nicole Jarbo. Nicole's been a friend and a colleague in the space for probably close to five years now. We first met in New Orleans with 4.0 Schools at kind of a weekend event. So shout out to 4.0 for that opportunity and all the work that they do. But nonetheless, um, you're going to see why Nicole is so great and revered in the space. We cover a lot in this episode. Um, everything from Nicole's earlier days playing college soccer with uh, a lady named Alex Morgan, if you're familiar with the soccer scene. Um, so pretty impressive there uh, from to how Nicole helps an organization raise a little over $13 million in less than a year, and also tips for nonprofit leaders on what they should stop doing in order to start raising more money. Um, so this one is really focused on, on fundraising, on strategy, um, and on growing support for minority-led organizations. Um, so we think you're going to get a lot of practical insight from this one. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Greg. How's it How going? You? <laughs> You're coming in o- o- Oakland today, right? Yep. In Oakland. It's nice and sunny. Let's see. It's uh, 57 degrees. Mm. So that's, not too it, bad. that's, that's kind of cold for us. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but I know not... the East Coast is like, that's heaven. I'm like, well, we're acclimated differently. We're, it's probably, I, I think we're probably right at like 50 today in Charlotte. Oh, it's probably a different 50 than, than Oakland 50, but I think nonetheless, like, you know, close. Good enough. Is it sunny? Uh, hard. No, we're, we're supposed to have like eight consecutive days of rain, uh, for sounds terrible. some reason. Yeah. Well, here we are coast to coast. I appreciate you joining. Of course. Happy to do it. Um, so I know you're an avid fan of the square pizza pod as is every person in America and on earth, but thank you for being an avid fan. Number one. Uh, and so you also know, we like to start with something fun and thinking about you, a lot of fun things, which the people are going to find out. Um, but reflecting on the first time we met, uh, was in that conference in Phoenix and I want to retell it. And then you correct me as always, if I'm wrong, which you do a good job of in a friendly way, of course. Um, but we were at the conference. I don't think you were slated to speak, but it was during like a, a, a plenary, if that's the right way to say that fancy word. And somebody was like, you know, this particular person was like so profound in one of the breakout sessions that we had an opportunity for like the peers to vote. And this person was like just dropping all this knowledge. And although it was not planned, we have asked her to come up and present. And all this time, like you're like, you know, we're clapping, you're walking up like, what the hell did this person say during one of these breakout sessions? And like, what do I need to learn and or do differently in my breakout sessions? Because she's obviously dropping things like on another level. And then, of course, it was you who got up on stage and dropped <laughs> even more knowledge there. And I was like, well, shit, we need to like be friends at some point. Um, and then I think we, we met at some point after that. But does that sound fairly accurate to you? I think so. I don't know how much dropping knowledge and wisdom was actually happening. I think I was probably the only person who wasn't trying to sell something. Mm. And so it was like a it was an easy, easy in. But yeah, it's so funny because I vaguely remember that. Um, I remember actually uh, Colin Seal from Think Law. Shout out to Colin. Was uh, was on there. And I was like, man, this guy talks a lot. And I'm not sure <laughs> if I like him yet. 
but you know, after that, we, uh, we were able to build a relationship and like, man, this guy's really, really freaking smart. And he just so inspirational in terms yeah. of his story and how much he cares yeah. and yeah. The thinking, think law, and like the thinking <laughs> creativity he brings to it. He's an awesome dude. So that was actually a pretty good conference. Um, met you, met Colin, met a ton of people that I'm still close to. And, uh, you know, TFA always has inspiring events. That's yeah. like the thing. It was. So yeah, I agree. I mean, we're both biased parties, I think, on this um, podcast slash session, but we're allowed to be. But yeah, I agree. That was actually my first and only social innovation conference we went to because then I went to because the next year, I don't think it happened. And then I think this year was then COVID, of course. Um, But yeah, it was really incredible. And Colin is great for a a number of of reasons. Um, So yeah, that was good. And then as we've got to know each other, it's been great. But learn something new again researching slash stalking about um your career as a varsity uh soccer athlete in college bench warmer i knew i liked you <laughs> but now it makes more sense tell tell the people more about uh, uh playing yeah soccer. so um i played soccer in college at a uh, university of california berkeley mm-hmm. and they're big sort of d1 women's soccer claim to fame uh was really around uh, having Alex Morgan go to the school, who's now one of the co-captains of the U.S. women's national team. And so for a name. while, we were, yeah, okay. um, yeah, for a while we were uh, training partners because I was a keeper wow. and she was a forward. And, you know, I'm sure this will come up. Uh, this, this will come up at some point in this conversation. But I think about what it means to be great and just really good at what you do. And Alex is such a clear example of somebody who is like relentlessly focused on being really good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was a senior, she would uh, stay after practice every single day and shoot basically the same shot over and over again. Mm-hmm. She'd get a, a square ball. I don't know if reader or listeners know a lot about soccer, but you know, square pizza pods, square there you ball. Go. Yeah. Well, so yeah, yeah. from our coach, take the ball her, She wouldn't be facing the goal. And so basically what she would do is take the ball uh, with her back to the goal and then take a turn and get the shot off or shoot her shot mid turn. Mm. Right. And so she would do this over and over and over again. And and I would be in goal because I was a senior. I wasn't going to class. Um, I I think that. You was know, not my, going to class. Don't just brush was, over that was, part. <laughs> you were I, was real fast. At the time. I mean, I think that, uh, I, I think that my schedule is open. So I would sit there uh, with her after uh, practice every single day. And of course she wouldn't, you know, she wouldn't make most of the shots, right? Because I knew what was coming. But if you watched her play subsequently, when she um, started playing for the national team, I mean, she's just amazing. And it was that shot. It's that sort of technique and that like fluidity that she um, and fluency that she's able to bring to the game, just because she like relentlessly focused on like this one type of move. Mm. Uh, that was so cool. And so the thing that was most interesting, probably about playing soccer at Cal, second most interesting was playing right. with Alex to, to be that close to someone who was so focused, right? Yep. Now I see that in education and, and social yep. entrepreneurship in those kinds of places. But that was awesome to be that close to somebody yeah. who um, just had a dream and actually did it. Um, but I have lots of Alex stories and, and that one is one of my favorites. Uh, my first favorite actually very quickly. I know this sure, is not about Alex Morgan, <laughs> but um, I picked her up from the airport. I think it was her recruiting trip. 
And um, I was, you know, I was driving into Berkeley and I was like, Al, you know, what do you want to major in? And she was kind of like, I don't care. Right. And it's like thinking like, how does she not care about this? And, and she sort of quickly sort of corrected herself because I'm not sure she wanted to come off as like, I don't care about education at all. But what she explained to me, which still just like sticks out in my mind is like, I just want to score in the World Cup. Yeah. Um, and I remember being like, hmm, okay. You know, like, I'm like, I know you're good. You're <laughs> so out do smart, I. Yeah, right. but like, okay, cool. Um, we're not that kind of team. Yeah. Um, mm. But, you know, I remember watching her, her play. I think it was maybe 2011. I was living in New Orleans. I was teaching at the time. Yep. And my co-ed team uh, was at this bar in Mid-City called Wits End. What's in? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. What's in? And we're watching the game. Um, we're eating round pizza. Sure. And uh, uh, not, not the good kind, but go ahead. We, we still accept it. <laughs> yeah. We're open. We're open to others. All right. All right. You didn't, yesterday but... was National Pizza Day. I don't know if you all took advantage of you that. You know, I did see that, but it was like late last night yeah. when I saw it and also like been going too hard on like pizza wine weekends. Um, so that's I'll, fair. I'll save that's it until fair. Friday. I'm going to save it until Friday. That's fair. Um, and so we're watching the game. I, I don't know if they're playing Germany or Japan or now I'm butchering this. So it, it's not as authentic as it could be. Um, but I remember watching her score in that game. And uh, I, I fell on the ground in the bar, which is if you've been to New, a New Orleans dive bar, that's not the, not the place you want to be on the floor. Um, uh and I, yeah, I just, I was just so overcome with emotion because it was, it was such an important moment. And I remember one of my, my friends on my co-ed team was like, what's up with Jarbo? Then another friend of mine who was like, oh, you know, she played with Alex and I didn't really say anything, but to me in that moment was so powerful because yep. I realized it was the first time I had ever witnessed or experienced somebody doing, um, actually achieving like their big dream. Wow. Like this yep. sort of big impossible dream. And so that was so critical. I think the reason it's one of my favorite stories is because it had mostly had an impact, obviously not just on me, but on how I approached teaching after that, because mm. I had been teaching at the time and uh, really turned my lens towards growth, potential, possibility, creativity, yep. rather than compliance. And, um, mm. you know, I'll just say, I'll just say compliance. Let's not, let's not go too crazy in that direction. But um, so that's what part of the rebel spirit came from. Yeah. It's so funny that that's rebellious, helping people do what they want to do. Right. Um, but yeah, so that that's um, that's part of my soccer life. I was a goalkeeper, as I said. Um, I ended up having three ACL surgeries. Wow. And a shoulder same, surgery. Same leg. Uh, well, two on one leg, because that's leg. how it ends up happening when there's three. And you only have two legs. But um, and a shoulder surgery. I mean, it's. I don't think people know how physically and emotionally and mentally taxing that is, yep. uh, particularly when you're doing that in college, right? Because you're uh, essentially expected to be a professional, mm -hmm. um, but you know, you're not paid as a professional and all sure. these other things uh, and then try to do well in school and college. Yep. And so for me, I was doing five, six hours a day on soccer related stuff in terms of, you know, PT, um, weightlifting, actually practicing, and then I had to go figure out how to have a full course load yep. and be successful and keep eligibility and then try to, if I could do anything else, like, I don't know, have friends outside of soccer, you know, that was really tough. Take a nap. But, yeah. Yeah. 
there was there were a lot of naps actually a lot of naps and a lot of video games now that I think about it I'm like I feel like I had a lot of time but um yeah that was my soccer career really great I'm still very very close to most of the women that I played with and they're all doing like amazing things like some of them are iron iron woman um you know have run in the Boston Marathon Mm -hmm. have like built amazing companies like really cool stuff I mean that's incredible it makes sense for a lot of reasons just given what I've come to know around like your um, tenacity ability to get back up all of like the semi cliche things in sports, but also as like a semi former college athlete. Like, I think those are like lessons learned that have been helpful for me. So I think it makes a lot of sense getting to know you and see that. Um, but you, you said a few things that I want to, I guess, kind of piggyback off of or, or follow up on. So like one, I heard you say the only reason Alex is great is because she practiced with you. Is that true or false? <laughs> um, I did not say that. And we have a recording. <laughs> but I, I want I do want to reiterate, I think that it's been so cool to to watch her sort of ascent and just do what she wants to do and continue yeah. to play. And it was also so clear that she just knew what her focus was and knew what her purpose was. And um I think a lot of us feel like that, but I have this sort of theory that when we're small, we have these massive dreams and then every year they get smaller and smaller and smaller and we learn Mm -hmm. how to limit ourselves and to see people just break through that and keep their dreams huge is like a really cool thing because I think when you can be that committed for that long, it's actually really hard to fail. And so your point around her practicing this one particular kick over and over again makes me feel like there has to be a similarity or a metaphor there compared to like the best teachers practicing maybe one move one lesson one content area the best strategist or fundraisers knowing what to do and knowing what not to do is that something you've that's carried over with you yeah i think it has to because it's just like it's the simplest explanation hmm. <laughs> right that like the more you do something well like the better you're going to be at it regardless mm-hmm. of if it's on the soccer field or it's strategy or it's having conversations but that, that ability to, to practice right um, and learn how to evaluate yourself. And I think it's more of the tenacity and like sort of grit that you're talking about. Yep. That's most important. Um, and a lot of like discipline, but the people, when I think about consultants, actually, you know, in our, our work, um, the folks that I think are just really great and I'm including us in this because this is our podcast right now. I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> I think that they just, they almost have an obsession about making transformational change. Mm. And I think that that obsession leads to the discipline to practice, to learn as much as you can. And like, that's really it. Right. And, um, lately I've been doing, this is kind of silly, but I'm going to say, I'm here for it. I'm just pretending it's you. (laughs) Um, Well, look, I think everyone can, and, take some value from this, hopefully. But as sort of a meditation in the morning, I've been listening to these motivational, like we're watching these motivational videos on YouTube that are really just sort of spliced up um, interviews from really great athletes or people like Oprah, really great entrepreneurs. And I've been doing this for about two weeks. And it's just really, really cool because these themes that we're talking about, like, they're just so consistent amongst high performers. And I think in this year coming into 2021, 
I've tried to tap into like, hey, what is my purpose and how do I, how do I be the best that I can be, right? Um, and whatever I'm doing. And so again, when I think about consultants, when I think about uh, teachers, when I think about athletes, I think it's that obsession with being great or, or growing to your potential that is incredibly like important. And, and we have to protect that and keep that obsession consistent. So widely off course, as I promised you already. <laughs> That's I'm, all right. I, I'm going to go with it. So 100% love the obsession. Probably have a few motivational ones that I watch that I can send you and want to know yours as well. But one thing I've been thinking about too, both for like the clients we serve and for our own team is building teams that have an equal or greater obsession with the work as maybe you slash we do as former athletes or in a, let's be open here. Not just all athletes have obsessions about being great. There's other yep. aspects and, and backgrounds of people's lives. Um, how have you seen that translate to the teams you're building or the teams you're working with, whether they have athletic backgrounds or not, but still mm -hmm. wanting to be so focused and obsessed on, on, on doing well. I like this smile because I know we got to yeah. get an answer coming. You know why? Cause I'm probably going to turn this back on you um, <laughs> because I pretty much work by myself and that mm -hmm. is purposeful. Mm -hmm. um, I have one full-time teammate and mm -hmm. then I, I work uh, with, with different folks in like a freelancing capacity, but sure. they're, they're not putting in tons of hours, maybe five hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, that's really interesting though, because I have a really strong bias against athletes and uh, I'm quite embarrassed about it actually. Against or for? For, okay. for, right. But then then you dig into it and not all athletes are the same. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm learning to, to turn that to, what is it that this person just feels obsessed about? Like, what are they just mm. so passionate about and, and love and want to see change? And can they articulate their purpose? And so that's one of the things that I'm really looking for um, in terms of placing people on teams or making introductions for people. Like, is that passion going to come through? Uh, but I mean, you have a team and people and they rely on you. And so I'm curious actually how you think about this. So as a team, we rely on each other is the company line, but also true. <laughs> um, I think, you know, certainly learned to your point, you know, questions to ask and even thinking about your question, like, um, it, that could be a real interview question. What are you obsessed about? And may, maybe yep. about this work, maybe about something else, but there's likely going to be some aspects of our work in the social entrepreneurship, social impact space that can carry over to what a potential team member, um, could be or is obsessed about in a, in a friendly slash professional slash healthy way. So I think there's very applicable questions to ask. I think we have learned both me individually, but also others as we hire and ask um, potential teammates to join just characteristics of what almost like a healthy obsession looks like, whether it's being athletics or something else. So I think it's one, the questions to the characteristics that come from the questions um, and then just three being really clear about how we hold each other accountable, I think in a way, and I think, you know, we learned, made a lot of mistakes that, you know, you and I also share being a part of a founding team of a charter school from scratch, but selfishly thinking back in our time, we were, you know, I think a few of the founding team members had athletic experience. So we were just going to say, we're going to watch film. We're going to film ourselves teaching. We're going to film everybody. We're going to sit down in the back of the room at the end of each day and put the film up and just like do friendly film sessions and critique around like what works and what doesn't. And to like the athletes in the room, that made sense. Like we're used to getting that type of feedback because 
it's tough feedback, but we're here to get better. But what we didn't do a good job of is like setting that expectation that it's a safe space. We may say some tough things, but we still love everybody. And so to the non-athletes, that didn't work very well in, in my memory. And that also like isn't for right or wrong, um, a consistent practice in education or, or really perhaps in other markets. And so that was a big gap between not just saying you're going to give feedback, but like coaching the team up to make sure they feel comfortable doing it in a way that was so um, maybe normal to former athletes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that really reminds me my first second now defunct uh, uh, venture was mm. a company called teacher gym. That I started in New Orleans. Already love and- it. Already love it. I have no <laughs> idea what it does, but I got a yeah. pretty good sense already. And I'm pumped. I want to invest. Good. I'm bringing it back. Um, and uh, it was really focused on practice-based uh, training, right? Mm. And so, you know, I was the kind of person, and I actually remember this at one of the school networks that I was at, I was actually practicing teacher moves, right? So walking around, pretending yep. there were kids in the classroom, and there's no one in the classroom. I'm just doing this by myself. You know, the, the CEO of the network actually videotaped me with his cell phone and actually sent it to everyone and then said something like, this is what practice looks like. Um, I have lots of thoughts about that now you know because I think to your point that kind of practice is to me it was helpful because Mm -hmm. I took a very like straight lined approach I was like in soccer you know we practice all week to play for three hours right right? like so the ratio is totally different but when we're in the classroom the ratio is flipped Mm. and so what can we do to start um to try to get that ratio better because it's not just sports that does this right? right it's um it's dancers do this, actors do this, mm-hmm. um, anything that is sort of like a performative yeah. uh, profession, they obsess over the practice and mastering the craft before they even get a shot, right? Which is so different than, uh, than what we do in education. And uh, I think that while that's really helpful, uh, I'm not sure back then if I really understood how different the incentives were. Mm right? Like you can't just practice by yourself and become a great teacher. Mm -hmm. Like you actually have to practice building relationships. You actually have to practice empathy. You actually need to know instruction, right? I was a good high school teacher because I taught second grade um, uh, and and kids who had uh, disabilities up to fourth grade. And so I had a very clear sense of where um, I knew where kids were going because I went to college, you know, at Berkeley. Um, but knowing where they were coming from and, and understanding that and understanding the fundamentals actually allowed me to be more creative working with um, <clears throat> different levels, right? So I, I think the practice is still great. I still love Teacher Gym. A friend of mine is like, that was the best thing that you've done. Can you just bring that back? See? Um, we, we need to have like a bar moment to like mm-hmm. actually go through what happened with that. But uh, I think for me, it was just like, the idea was great. Theoretically, it's sound, but it leaves out the things that actually make doing mm. education well so difficult. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I look for people yep. who I think are willing to do that if they had to, mm-hmm. um, but also are critical enough to say, is this actually the point of highest leverage? Mm. Um, is this actually going to drive us towards the outcomes and opportunities we want? Or is there another way, a safer way, um, a more differentiated way, right? That's a really good point. I want to follow up if I can then build off it to the next point. But yeah, I think, you know, perhaps if if you're 
a chef and you have that one dish that's great um you know you're really good at that one dish you push it out and you, you know you might be an ass with the rest of your teammates but they probably keep you around right if you're something else you know maybe even an athlete and you're an ass but you can rebound or you can score the goal they might keep you around but teaching and and i guess in other professional settings it's it's so varied and you have to have those differentiated skills that just like teaching kids how to balance fractions is good but that won't keep you in in the building i think i'm wondering from those connections like how that connects to what you do and what you've been doing the past few years around strategy and, and building teams and fundraising and supporting others that are fundraising? What overlaps, if any, do you see there? Yeah, um, it would probably be helpful if I told people what I do. Um, like this random person. I told everybody you were Alex Morgan. I changed, <laughs> uh, I changed the title already. Um, so uh, I have a firm uh, called Good Bets, and we really started the firm to help underrepresented folks raise money. Uh, particularly very early stage folks. And um, that really came from a unique perspective that I had. So I taught, I helped people launch ventures, I'd launched my own ventures, but I also worked directly with um, what we called ultra high net worth um, individuals. And so that was 1.5 billion net worth and up. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with them as a philanthropic advisor of some sorts and as a steward. And so my job was really to get these people together pull insights from conversations with them, sometimes fly and talk to them in their living rooms about KIPP or like some other organization that might um, be of interest to them, but mm -hmm. to really ingratiate them into the landscape of ed philanthropy um, and, and support whatever their philanthropic efforts were, right? And so it's really rare you get someone who's been in the classroom, who's actually built something, who's coached people to build things, um, but then's actually worked with the people who fund them, funds those things, yep. right? And so um, I wanted to bring some of that information to the people who I thought were sort of farthest away from that access. Mm. Um, and I personally do, you know, I'm going to say this, and I think it's like sometimes controversial to certain people, but bring it. I really think that we need to invest in coaching and mm. we need to invest in people who have that 30 foot view. Mm. And I'm saying this because right now what I'm seeing in the space, and I'm totally not answering your question directly, but I'll come back to it. Um, what I've seen in this space is that people are often capitalizing on things that are, are really actually out of scope of what they do, right? Just because you built a great nonprofit doesn't mean you can actually help anyone build a great nonprofit. Hmm. And I want to be really so clear about I, that. So when you say, yeah, when you say... Yeah. Cause I think you said something really important there as always, but when you say capitalizing off of something they weren't meant to or didn't build, what does that look like in practicality? Yeah. Um, I think it, uh, and it's hard for me to say this because I think this is really the mode right now where, you know, people want to build brand, people want to mm -hmm. extend mm -hmm. their impact and reach. Um, but if you've built like a kick-ass nonprofit and you're helping people and it's getting legs and traction, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. believe that's your purpose. Um, I come from the perspective of like going deeper and being greater and like extending your impact for communities, mm -hmm. right? Um, some people take that and they're like, well, now I should just show people to do what I did. Mm. But again, that's, that's so difficult, yep. right? Um, it's, and you know, we've been talking about sports a lot. Think about sports. There, there are not 
not everybody who's a great coach was a great player and not everyone who's, you know, so. Or, or a great basketball owner in the city of Charlotte that would welcome <laughs> on the square right. pizza pod to be clear exactly. when he hears this, but we want to know exactly. when we're going to start winning. But anyways, go ahead. Well, I mean, if you could put him back on the court, uh, if he was, he was ready. Talk about things that don't translate maybe, right? Sorry to, to butt in, but I think yeah, it's yeah, important, right? Because like what, what made sense for for him, you know, him, uh, that made him a great leader and champion on the court may not be applicable to management or leadership styles from the owner's box. Right, right. And, you know, look, I – I have just been thinking a lot about this obsession and, and passion thing. I've been having a lot of conversations about it because this is a journey I'm trying to figure out. Hmm. Like I'm talking about this, but I don't know if I could tell you what my obsession or passion is. Um, and that feels really tough, right? Like that feels hard to, to know that this is so critical in me uh, meeting my potential, but then still have lots of questions. Hmm. And going back to what this looks like in practicality, like, I think it's someone who's doing something great, who's clearly found what like they are best at. Um, but in order to try to capture more value, I wouldn't even say provide value. I would say in an attempt to capture more value from the space, they're like doing this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, instead of being like the best person mm -hmm. at the thing that they do, mm -hmm. right? And so connecting this back to like what we've actually done, we started with fundraising, but like, I'll be honest with you, everyone needs the same thing in the beginning. And it really wasn't that someone needed a development plan or this or that, that stuff was for their board. That wasn't, that wasn't going to drive the core mechanism that allowed them to be effective at fundraising. It's just mm -hmm. a piece of paper, you know, it's just a yep, PowerPoint. Point. Um, so what we say about it, strategic plans. Right. Like <laughs> what I learned because our focus is so, um, has been initially on folks who are just starting is that it's how they feel about themselves. It's how they mm. feel about themselves in the space. Like, you know, I had so many calls where uh, clients, everyone thought this client was amazing and they had everything going on. They had the perfect story, yada, yada, yada. I'm getting calls, you know, midnight, 10 PM from these people who are just saying, I'm scared. Mm. Like I have to go do this thing tomorrow, talk to this donor mm -hmm. and I'm scared. And I don't want to tell people that, you know, I was homeless before, mm. or I don't want to ask this person from a different background for money, because that reminds me when I grew up on welfare mm. and we had asked people for money. And so, you know, I very quickly realized that if I wanted to have an impact with people that I had to go to the root cause of what was stopping them from like reaching what their potential was, right. What yep. they had mapped out for themselves. And, um, I, I think that's something that like we don't often talk about. I'm actually just writing a short piece on this. It's kind of about equity and and where I think we're missing the point. Um, but I think a lot of programming, leadership programming, um, business programming in the ed space uh, does not sort of holistically look at the person, mm. right? You can learn how to market Psychology. from anywhere. Yep. Right. Like you can learn how to market. You can learn how to sell clients, get clients from anywhere. Um, but it's really difficult to to like own your own space and be like, I'm here. I deserve to be here and I'm going to act like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be the freaking best person at whatever I do possible and impact the most kids and make the most change in the community. And so when I'm evaluating people now that we work with, that's actually who I'm looking for. You know, I say no to people all the time. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the people I say yes to, they just like really want to make transform transformational change. Mm-hmm. And they just really want to leave a personal legacy mm-hmm. that like they're proud of, like no cheesy crap. They just like want to be proud of what they've done. What's up? They're obsessed with wanting to make that change. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the folks just feel stuck. Yeah. Um, they feel stuck. And so if, if you told me that I was going to be having these therapy like conversations with people when I just started, I would have been like, no, I'm just going to give them a list of donors. Mm-hmm. Um, when I realized those lists were going untouched for a really long time, I was like, how am I going to be effective? I'm definitely not going to be if you don't look at anything I make you. Right. Uh, but that opened the door to to really ask people what they needed. And it was that holistic support that they're afraid to ask for, because when you run something, you're not allowed to ask for help. And um, I think we should fix that. Hmm. I think we should change that. You know, and so one of the questions I was going to ask was around like practicality, like, you know, and bragging on you a little bit. One, love the updated website, or at least since it's updated, since I last checked it out. Two, um, bragging on you for a number of things, but specifically with the 4.0 and the $13 million raise, which is incredible for a number of reasons. Some of the, the angel syndicate that uh, I think a few mutual contacts have joined, I think likely as, as a result of that. But raising that, particularly for them and with them and with some of your other partners and given what you just said is that mindset, that like coaching piece, the number one thing you would offer to our listening audience today if they are in the shoes of a nonprofit leader thinking about raising money besides calling you, but you're probably going to turn them down anyways. So if no, you do turn I'm going to turn all of you down. Um, <laughs> I'm going to turn all of you down because I, I told Greg earlier that I'm retiring, um, but I have a square pizza pod for on her website for a discount code of drop, 99 drop in, 99 drop in the mic here. Um, easy I, will I take a I have always taken a call with someone who's asked. I've never mm. refused a call. Um, you know, sometimes I've talked to people on the phone for six hours mm. who never became clients. Um, just because I, I think it's just really like, it's just hard. And when you're doing this alone, it's just hard. And I know how that is. And um, I, I want I want my actions to match the values that I have. Yep. Um, so what I would, practical advice. Uh, Yeah. I would say if you're a nonprofit leader and you're, you're just getting started, um, I would spend a lot of time thinking about who your ideal donor is. Mm. I actually think this is the biggest mistake organizations make. They see an organization like them and they were funded by Walton or new schools or whatever. And that's how they build their list. Mm. Um, And then they, then they're worried about having to change who they are. Mm-hmm. when they meet those people. And so I think to avoid that, getting crystal clear um, psychographically, uh, interest-wise, uh, regional specificity-wise um, that you can on, on a funder, like that's great because it does a couple of things. It gives you an automatic list of people to say no to and not waste mm-hmm. your time with. And um, it, it also helps you make sure that you have the right partners on board as soon as possible. And this is, it's hard to do because people feel urgent, right? Sure. But um, it's actually the thing that makes a difference. So I think my clients that have been most successful, um, they went in with a mentality of like, this is only going to be right for like two or three people. And so they didn't waste time doing things 
like you know spending a lot of spending a lot of time like hobnobbing and these kinds of things mm -hmm. they were just laser focused um, and relentless about meeting the exact type of person they needed to meet mm. that's really good um i think applicable for a number of reasons things we've seen uh in, in some of our work but also i think just in in the space as well how important that is not to chase that but the return on investment that can come when you begin to court and understand the right people compared to spreading a wide net and just hoping anything yeah. comes back both and in look, like a practicality consultants too right like <laughs> there's some people we just don't freaking want to work with because they're terrible um and then you sometimes you get sucked in because of money or timing um yep. and then you always regret it Mm -hmm. But you literally always. always regret it. And I see that happen a lot. And so I would say knowing who that best partner is, is the first domino because it affects everything. Mm. It changes your marketing. It changes how you do strategic planet, planning. Mm. It changes um, who you bring on board, onto your board, onto your advisory board. You can actually build your whole organization to make sure that you are um, partnering with the right person and you can build it as a magnet. Like, and that's what happens. Your mm -hmm. organization actually will become a magnet. I like that. Um, yeah. 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 That's really good. Um, love the idea of kind of like seeking those you seek to serve, working with those you seek to serve and those that come will build their own community around them in that way. And like using that magnet, that's great. Um, okay. As promised, we talked about nothing we thought we were going to talk about, but <laughs> I, I think I had fun nonetheless. Um, so a few rapid fire, semi rapid fire. Yeah. Well, uh, I feel like you have to ask me about the philanthropy thing. I'll make a really quick answer because as a fundraiser, I should be making my controversial philanthropy comments. Yeah, go. I'm not even going to ask you a question. I'm just, um, just say, say as, as yeah, many controversial so, so, things now as you can. All right. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, maybe just like one comment about where I think there's a big opportunity for philanthropists who care about equity. Um, I wrote a piece that was in Fast Company, um, just about helping Black people uh, during during this time. And it's not just about Black people, right? right? But I think the the main theme I want people to sort of understand, from my perspective, is we actually know what to do, mm -hmm. and we as you know philanthropists need to figure out how to trust communities. And Greg, I know you do a ton of work around community engagement and family engagement. And to me, it's the same thing. I think there's a fundament, fundamentally, there's a breakdown. The people giving money to these communities are the people who are farthest away from the communities, right? Or I see a lot of things like listening tours and, and panels with the community. And I'm like, we need more like parity in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know why somebody who went to a fancy Ivy League school who has always benefited from the education system could ever do a damn thing to actually help change it into something that benefits someone unlike them. Right. Right? And, and that's the, the biggest challenge that I, I have personally. Um, I don't think education will change until the people making decisions about funding are the people who actually have the most incentive for the system to change. And those are folks who've actually been disenfranchised by the system, not people who got a lucky break and ended mm -hmm. up capitalizing on the system. And so when people ask me why things move so slow, I just point to that. Like there's, if you don't know intimately how broken this is, you have very little chance of making it better for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel really strongly about that. And that's why things like 
you know, the, the angel syndicate and other mm -hmm. projects I'm doing, like with the equity lab, where they want to elevate the voices of the people who have been disenfranchised or not included in that decision-making processes, like process, like those programs are so important because they, they can actually be transformational for the space and, and maybe they'll get funders to look in the mirror a little bit more. It's a great point. I mean, the article is great. We're going to link to that as well as a crunch base one as well, which was really strong. And so we'll, we'll make sure our audience sees that. Um, and with all that, knowing we're not moving as, as a society fast enough, do you see any hopes of change in, in that piece around getting closer approximate to change and funding those that understand the answers to the challenges? Yeah. Like, I don't think any, like every single person who went to an Ivy League school is terrible or right. anything like that. Um, I, I just think, um, I think if we can figure out how to connect on a more human level mm -hmm. um, and embed that into the giving process and the work process, then we can get there. And regardless of what I say, I only say these things out loud because I'm actually very optimistic that they sure. will change. Sure. Yep. Um, so totally. And not that you need another data point, but just to offer one, you know, in a very yep. small way, we, we tested this a little bit with one of the schools we worked with in response to COVID to build a family relief fund. And, you know, the, the, from a, a local funder built the, the committee of families, if you will, and the families decided how the money was dispersed. And again, by no surprise, but just another awareness point is the families are more critical in, in a positive way of how the money should be divided than any other funder or anybody else would be and or knowledge of how that money should be used to the other families they were funding. Right. Um, in, in, in such a, an incredible and powerful way that, again, was not surprising or shocking by any means, but just another reminder of why we need to get to this level faster and at a bigger impact. Totally. And you get it. And that's why I'm hopeful. Right. We just need more people who get it, who have access um, to, to share that access. Yes, sir. Okay. And we, we might have just answered this one, but I'm going to ask it anyways. 30 yeah. seconds or less. What's the most innovative thing in public education you're seeing? <laughs> I'm going to plug the thing I'm working on. <laughs> uh, the, the, well, two things. So the Angel Syndicate that 4.0 is doing right now, yep. it's focused on um, Black aspiring philanthropists. But the whole idea is um, this is a pilot to hopefully build something much, much bigger um, where the people funding innovation in public education are actually regular people, mm -hmm. right? And so right now the, the investment is $1,000. It's too high. We know it's too high. But, mm -hmm. you know, this is a pilot we're trying to, to learn. And... Um, you know, we hope to drop that cost down significantly um, while we educate a broader community about how important it is to make decisions about where money goes in public education, because the truth is there are very few funders we can trust with this power and the lack of innovation has showed us that. So that one's awesome. And then really quickly, the Art Collaborative, uh, a project that I'm doing with the support of Catalyst Ed, um, a nonprofit uh, based in New Orleans as well. Um, this is a project for Ed Consultants of Color and what it is, is you can think of it as sort of a business accelerator. Okay. I came into the program and I was like, we don't need another business accelerator. And so I have been really conscious about designing this as a community of well-being support with some business stuff, right? Hmm. Um, I think about all the hard times I've had, like borrowing friends for money and not telling them 
where it was going and trying to manage all of that on a spreadsheet so I could yep. pay my rent and the, the embarrassment, the imposter syndrome, the, you know, the stress mm -hmm. uh, of doing this work. You know, mm -hmm. none of these programs address folks on a holistic way. And I think if we are working with communities of color, we have to acknowledge one, there are massive mental health issues and disparities in communities of color. And then if we're talking about entrepreneurs, the same thing exists for entrepreneurs. And so those two mm -hmm. things compound to make this a really, really difficult journey from a human level for people. And so the goal of the art collaborative is to build a new kind of program that um, builds something holistically um, helpful for people. Because to me, fundamentally, if we want equity, we have to look at the whole person and make sure yeah. that they're okay. I think that's great. Yeah, we'll make sure to link to, to both of those in the show notes too. Um, last and most selfish question, <laughs> square pizza. What does it remind you of? I think that like most of your guests have sort of said the same thing, right? Depends. Uh, I was. Mean, if you're quizzing me, I can tell you, but I mean, which episode yeah, you it's listen like to. it's school lunch. It's school lunch, right? Like hot lunch. I mean, it's not a it's not a right or wrong, right? Nicole. I mean, it's not right or wrong. Um, okay, I think, well now I'm like, did I get it right? <laughs> I mean, so, some people have taken it artistically around like innovative, creative, delicious, more of like an adjective. Some people have, have taken it literally as perhaps you are. One, which I've, I've told a bunch, so people may get tired of hearing this, but like uh, Dr. Fuller, Howard Fuller from yeah. Milwaukee, who was like our first guest and I was nervous as hell. New pride yeah. to do. I was like stuttering and shit. But he, so I, so I made it that you could, <laughs> I made it through the episode and I asked him, he goes, what the hell is square pizza? And I was like, motherfucker. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And then he, cause he, they didn't serve square pizza either back in the day when he was in public schools or currently in Milwaukee. So we found out it was like a regional thing. Um, ah, so it wasn't as applicable to Without everybody. doing the school thing, I will give a shout out to what I think is some of the best pizza in New York. Okay. Um, which is Prince Street Pizza. Okay, shout out to Prince and Street. Their slices are square, square slices. Mm -hmm. And if you ever go there, I mean, you've got to wait in line, obviously, but the walls are littered with people like Kim Kardashian and oh. like, you know, all these other celebrity. I don't know why I thought of her. I was going to say, it would not have been my first <laughs> guest if somebody would have came out of your mouth. <laughs> <I think so. laughs> but um, it's, just, it's just like such a fan favorite. Um, in New York. So I think of that too. They do this uh, thing where they put like honey on like pepperoni pizza. It's bougie, awesome. bougie pizza in New York. Good. Um, Nicole, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to connect again. Thanks so much for checking out the Square Pizza Pod, making a few selfish requests. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast and share this with a friend. We appreciate it. Thanks.